Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Cuter. Hi, Bill. Hello, Holly. <laughs> Wednesday, and I feel like I have been, you know, the Flintstones cartoon? I do. Um, and how they use the stone cars and they have to operate them with their scrambling uh-huh. feet. Uh huh. I feel really scrambly. Like they look still from here up, but under underneath their feet are moving so fast to get the car moving just a little bit. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I heard that the people who live in the EAU mm-hmm. do not like the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. But I happen to know that people who live in Abu Dhabi do. Yabba Dabba Do. Abu Dhabi do. Oh, bad joke. Oh, bad joke. Uh... Well, you're also like a duck because ducks mm-hmm. seem to be. Above the surface of the water, very calm, and then but underneath they're paddling curiously, and then they go at this forty-five degree angle, or is it a ninety-degree angle? Their butts stick up in the air, and their heads go yeah. down so they can get something to eat. Yeah, yeah, we're we're um, we're within walking distance of the Chinese gardens, mm-hmm. and we walked over there. Uh, when the weather was so beautiful here a few a couple of weeks ago. And um, I'm sure you've been to the Chinese gardens, right? Yeah. Well, there's the Japanese gardens, like with. I mean, the Japanese. Yeah. I keep saying Chinese, Japanese, Japanese, Japanese. I said it wrong. The Japanese the garden. Yeah. yeah. And they have ducks there. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ducks we saw was over in a, like a bulrush area, just settled down. And she was nesting on her eggs. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mentioned that to somebody in the Ordinary Life class who goes to the Japanese gardens on a regular basis and feeds the ducks, knows the ducks, and all that sort of stuff. And she sent me a picture of oh, the eggs. Wow. Yeah. That's so cool. So there will be some little baby ducks yeah. coming out into the water soon. Do you know yeah. that, um, you know, it's, it's funny, I... I, I sometimes wonder if like ducks have like CPS agents. <laughs> sometimes um, if there's two mama ducks who have ducklings at the same time, one of the mama ducks will take the other mama ducks babies and add them to her brood, her little, what do you call them? Uh, clutch of ducks. And, uh-huh. um, and it, it can be like a really sad thing because the mama duck, whose babies have been taken is like chasing after the row of ducklings and the other mama duck to try and get her babies to come back to her. Uh Um, Anyways, I don't know why that happens, but, um, but there's this kind of like pooling together of all the ducklings that can happen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And all the little ducks get imprinted on the mama duck and they just follow her around. Yeah. Yeah, they do. And then there's these videos of, of puppies, you know, kind of taking two baby ducks and the baby ducks starting to follow the puppies around. 
as if the of this as if the puppy is the mama duck or vice versa the puppy starting to follow the mama duck around <laughs> i haven't seen those they're really funny these are yeah these are the gifts of the internet <laughs> but anyway yeah. yeah well you know i think that those eggs are another sign of hope yeah that things keep birthing and yeah in the world yeah no for sure i mean animals many animals practice little acts of faith every day sitting on an egg you don't know how it's if it's something is going to come out of it or not but uh, yeah yeah i had occasion to remember and having a conversation yesterday with somebody about hope mm -hmm. something that i just re-looked up this morning on the internet and i want to follow up on it so anybody who's listening i want them to know that i am not making this up uh, but it is certainly something I see as a sign of hope. And it's a, a movement that a man in our church, his name is Bill Fester. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Fester is, um, I just want to go public and say, he is one of the most amazing human beings. He, um, he is self-employed. Mm -hmm. He uh, works in some aspect of the medical supply. Uh, industry i'm not sure what he doesn't supply medical supplies he supplies people who work in medical facilities and specialized medicine oh interesting particularly yeah. in the pharmaceutical arena mm -hmm. but every morning when he goes to work he gets up and gets dressed and puts on a bow tie and walks down the hall and goes to work because he gets dressed to go to work yeah one, i love one, it one time I was with him and I said, wow, that's a really beautiful shirt. Where did you get it? And he said, I made it. He made so it? He, can make, he made it. He can make his own clothes. Uh, he and his wife had two Vietnamese potbelly pigs as pets. They uh -huh. live in a place where they can have those pets inside their home. I went and saw the pigs one time. Um one time we had Bill and Frederica, his wife, over for dinner, and as a house gift, he brought me two ceramic cufflinks that he had made. I mean, it's just he can do all the stuff. And occasionally he will give me books that he thinks I need to read. He gave me an interesting book one time about how houses learn. Hmm. And I'll give you an example of houses learn that like in the time when I grew up and neighborhoods were much different than neighborhoods now, houses had front porches. Yeah. And people sat on front porches and greeted the neighbors who passed by and neighbors would come and sit on the front porch and visit with them. Another thing that he talked me about and actually gave me a book to read, and this was years ago, and then I read it, I got interested in it, and then as so many things happened, it just kind of drifted off my radar. He gave me a book called The Clock of the Long Now, hmm. and I know you have the facility right this minute to go on the Google okay. and to look up the clock of the long now and you will see that there is a group of people who have committed themselves to building a clock that is inside a mountain that is going to be designed to work for a thousand years okay 
So it's a whole you foundation, see, the, the long a, oh, now it, foundation. It's a huge foundation. And if you think about, well, the, uh, and if you read about what the people who have put this foundation together are all about, it's about uh, if you're going to build a clock that's going to last for a thousand years, you have to have a community of people who are committed to do that, an ongoing community of people. You have to have the resources to do it. You have to have the technology. The You have to stay current in so many ways. There's so many other things that have to happen for this to work. Anyway, it's a fascinating idea. And so I kind of forgot about it and then let it go. But yesterday I was in a conversation with somebody who started talking to me about this challenge I've laid down to keep a hope journal. Huh. Yeah. And so, in the process of doing that, I just had this, oh, this flash of memory. Oh, I remember one of the most hopeful things I ever read about was this Clock of the Long Now Foundation. So this morning, about 20 minutes before we did this podcast, I Googled, and sure enough, it's still there and still seems to be a vibrant, growing, vital thing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I mean, I'm just kind of like looking at this website and going, whoa, first of all, how do you even do that? <laughs> um, build a clock inside of a mountain. But I also kind of go, that's such a very human thing to do, like to build a clock inside of a mountain. Yeah. And say. Well, um, it's better than keeping a, a an atomic warhead missile inside a mountain. Yes. And nature already keeps time for us. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's just interesting. I, well, I, mean, this, I, I want. I want to go back and read more about it. And, yeah, and see about that. I've been reading this as I told you Sunday in the class that we did together. Darmud or Murakus, uh, he's got two new books out, and one of them is about how we make sense of going forward after the pandemic, and he's really talking a lot about how the the pandemic was this um, it was the cause of human intervention in nature not being cooperative and taking um stock of the consequences of what happens when we encroach on nature's habitat mm -hmm. yeah i mean it's definitely we, we do it every day all the time is and like we're also part of nature's habitat, you know, we encroach and we're also part of it. And, and yet like, sometimes we operate like an invasive species and sometimes we operate like a symbiotic reciprocal being, you know, it, it's, these are challenging notions to think about. Um, we, there's been so many things said about humans that maybe we're the virus or maybe we're the, you know, alien species coming in from another place to kind of wreck our habitat. Um, so much of it has to do with ego, I think, but I'm just so curious about that. Like we, do we encroach or are we meant to be here? And if we're meant to be here, how shall we behave so that we are working in synchronicity with everything around us? You know. Well, I, I think that one of the tragic myths of Western civilization, and I'm going to say it's mostly West, although we can also fault Plato for a lot of stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it's a, the tragedy, the message that that's led the Western civilization astray is the the Adam and Eve myth, and it's the part of the myth where they are driven out of the garden and given the command to dominate the earth. Yeah. And uh, we feel like that because of that, uh, and because of the human inclination for competition and prejudice and patriarchy and things that worked into the human culture, um, domination has given humans the belief that we have the right to do whatever we want to do to the earth and to other people. And when I say we, I'm meaning mostly white people. Yeah. We have a very, we are, we have become the most significant population of colonizers in the known world. Mm -hmm. And that means that we colonize space to be our own. And I'm still talking about white Europeans Mm -hmm. or white of European descent. It just is. And I, you know, I I imagine that there are other um, ways that that occurs where in caste systems um, in other countries as well, or between other countries, there is just as human beings, we seem to vie for domination rather than Mm -hmm. for, participation or partnership Mm -hmm. and I um speaking of hope (laughs) there's such a long trajectory of evidence for a pattern of domination that it is hard to feel hopeful for that Mm -hmm. to take a turn toward participation and partnership Mm -hmm. Um, and yet and yet there are pockets of people who still today operate very much in partnership with mm-hmm. the land, with one another, with their neighbors, and it feels like it's not a large enough part of the population to make a dominant impact on the sort of global politic, if you will. But there are pockets of people who, either by necessity or by belief system so uh, i i want to i want to raise a question for you and for people who are listening to ponder uh in this book that i'm reading for uh, uh, that america has written called beyond the pandemic he gives an illustration which i've heard before but he has it well documented that before a major tsunami that occurred a number of years ago that was so devastating in the Pacific Ocean to Indonesia, or I don't remember where it was, but anyway, it was a huge, tragic uh, tsunami, that there was an indigenous group of people who um, knew intuitively, because they were reading the signs of the earth and the animals and other things, that the tsunami was coming. And so the elders of the tribe uh, got the indigenous people to strike camp and move to much higher ground. And Aburku says there's also reporting from anthropologists who were who've gone back to study that that period, uh, which has been in the last 20 years or so, that there were herds or species of animals that also 
intuited that the tsunami was coming. And there were tourists, American tourists and European tourists, who were still wanting to go down to the coast to see what was happening. And so they disregarded the warnings of the people who had made it to higher ground, and uh, they were they died. They got killed. And later, there were others, scientists and, again, anthropologists, who went to these indigenous tribal leaders to ask them about how they gained the wisdom to know that the tsunami was coming. Miku uses this as an illustration that there there is a tsunami coming. Mm. Uh, and there's a tsunami coming. Uh, we've gotten vaccines against the current variation of the coronavirus, <clears throat> but we have not eradicated the virus, and we won't, he says, because we are still doing the same behaviors mm -hmm. that got the virus here in the first place. Now, what can we do to listen to the warning sign? Mm. Um, we still are destroying the Amazon rainforest at an mm -hmm. incredible rate. And that's like cutting your lungs out of your body. Yeah. Yeah. And expecting to breathe. Totally. Yeah. So think, how, yeah. how can yeah. we get, how can people who have a sense that enough is enough and we need to do some radical things, I guess Greta Thunberg, Thunberg, would yeah. wonder the same question how do you how do you get the attention of people yeah i um i think that that's the quintessential question because i think what you explain that um diamut omiraku is looking at is the whole picture right a virus doesn't just get created in a vacuum and released upon an entire global population without without encroachment mm -hmm. and it's uh and so the whole picture is that we've been working towards this for years and years and years and years um you know it's funny because something like the black death that happened so long ago in the middle ages uh required knowledge and innovation in order to quell its impact in other words the knowledge was oh we need to wash our hands. <laughs> and the innovation was indoor plumbing or a place to go to the bathroom that wasn't outside and shared among a public, you, mm -hmm. you know, you know and cle so clean water, basically. Mm -hmm. And that innovation created um, security for the population and disease wasn't spread as fast. It is said that that innovation, the washing the of the hands and clean water came from nuns from a group of women. I I love that. <laughs> but it also, but like, so that that that's quelled the death rate of the Black Death and was a necessary intervention because it wiped out what, a third of the world's population at the time, or of the of the Western, mm -hmm. of the kind of European and uh mm -hmm. beyond world's population. But it but I'm wondering now, it's like because of our extreme interest in innovation and invention, we've caused a whole other kind of imbalance in, in the earth that has harmed us. So we've kind of gone too far in this innovation and, and intervention, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, there have been some times in history where we've had some turning points, but um, we certainly seem to be on the cusp of so much um, potentially more divisiveness, certainly in the political discourse in this country. Um, yeah. And you've got I don't know what has to happen to make it make it different. Maybe we should all go join the Clock of the Long Now Foundation and do what we can to keep the clock going. Because yeah. we'd have to we'd have to cooperate with each other to make that happen. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the principles of the foundation is that <laughs> if we're gonna pull this off, we have to we have to work together. Yeah. It's interesting. Okay, so it says here are it it is designed to foster long-term thinking so the long now right like how can that's radical imagination which is a little bit about what i was talking about with hope the other day right is mm -hmm. that hoping for something in the future how do we work backwards and bring it to the now so mm -hmm. i i'm so curious to read more about this i think it is funny to have a clock in the middle of a mountain but <laughs> But I, I like the principle of kind of how do we how do we foster something today that could still be felt in a positive way, you know, 10,000 years from now. Um, our mark on things seems to be changing it. In other words, we change aspects of nature to suit our needs. Mm hmm. You know what I mean? Like, what would it look like to not have to change the natural world to suit our needs or to mark our perception of time, mm -hmm. but to still work in that direction? Mm -hmm. You know, I want before we get away from this, because I know you hear this on your screen. Mm -hmm. I can see you reading it. Yeah. <laughs> where is where, where is the mountain? Does it say where it is? Let us see. It says the Long Now Foundation is in San Francisco, California. Is that where the mountain is? Clock. I don't know. So other people can look it up as well, but. Oh my really gosh, know. it's in West Texas. Of course it's what? in West Texas. It is still being assembled deep inside a mountain in West Texas. That's all it says? That's what it says. Does it say where in West Texas? No, I'm just going to guess somewhere around the Chisos Mountains, Big Bend, El Paso, kind of in that. That's the only place where we have mountains. Wow. Mm -hmm. How come we don't hear about this anymore? I mean, I don't what? know. I'm like, that feels like a pretty big endeavor. That's like building NORAD inside of um you know a mountain in colorado so i'm gonna, I'm gonna find out more about it if i'm gonna talk yeah I, I, this is really curious i'm i'm and i'm sure that in my typical personality response i will have both curiosity about it and criticism of it. Yeah. <laughs> so is that a is that a sixth quality well that's the loyal skeptic Oh, okay. I like what you're doing, but let me ask all kinds of questions about what you're doing and why you're doing it. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a bit of a way of ensuring that my loyalty is worth it. And 
that's yeah. It's also an anxious behavior. Let me ask a lot of questions so that I can make sure I understand this. <laughs> but yeah. By the way, we're a step closer toward getting Suzanne Stabil to come to Houston. Oh, that's great. Uh, we are nearing it down to four dates right now, sometime uh -huh. this year. So, oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, is, yeah. it looks really promising. That's great. Um, the I, I I learned I learned a long time ago uh, several things about working inside a religious structure. Um, and it's so, I mean, you know, I, I don't have familiarity with the quote, Methodist system, but I do know that, that it's very hierarchical and you've got a senior pastor, whoever that is, who is the one who says yes or no on anything that happens in the structure. Mm -hmm. All right, so then the bigger the structure, the more complex and complicated it is. And when you get a structure as big and as complex as St. Paul's is and put it in the middle of a multi-university, big medical center city and trend, try to plan something, you're in the context of a hundred other things being planned at the same time and trying to figure out if this event is going to conflict with some other major social event or whatever you just it's just it's a game of cards to try to figure that out so right now it is in the what is the best possible date out of the ones that we have options for to to try to go for yeah but suzanne suzanne seville is probably one of the, the leading authorities in the English speaking world on on the Enneagram right now. Mm -hmm. And and she's a wonderful presenter. I've been exposed to her work through the Richard Orr organization. Mm. She's funny, she's smart, and so she's gonna come and people who wanna know more about their own personality and getting to know themselves better can get ready because she's gonna be here. Tell you, tell you who you are. And is that the work to to sort of consult with people both intimately as well as um, a whole group presentation on the Enneagram or? It'll be a combination of both. If my memory is correct. She did presentations and also small group exercises. And Very one good. of the one of the really amazing things was that she would get a group of people on the stage who were all sixes. Yeah, or all so eights or there was all a, whatever. There was, a comp there was a workshop like that a couple of years ago at St. Paul's, maybe five or maybe even eight years ago. And I was one of the people, one of the sixes on the stage. And I actually yeah. had a hilarious experience. Um, you know, I don't mind being in front of people. I'm not an, I'm not what you would call an antisocial six. And I, I have an affable personality. But I definitely have this little radar going on, like, like, what is everybody thinking, you know, right. and it's, and it's sometimes it's loud and sometimes it's not, but she, this woman, it wasn't Suzanne Stabile, it was two other women, I believe from California, maybe just one mm -hmm. of them lives in California, I cannot remember their names right now. Um, but she, she just kind of notices she does a lot of somatic work. So she sort of notices where things are being held in your body and what movements of your body. And she asked me some question that finally got me to say, like, 
I'm just so terrified of what everybody's thinking. <laughs> and, um, and she said something about look around, does anybody wish you harm here? And somebody in the back, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on who was like, no, we love you, you know, and I, um, and, and, and it just something happened, something shifted in me, where I could not stop giggling. So I had this release of anxiety that had to do with laughter. And I, I tapped into something that I think is actually fundamental to my personality, which is joy. Like, I think beneath the fear and the anxiety and the, am I good enough is a deep joy, a deep, like love of life, a deep kind of like uh -huh. vivaciousness. And so something happened in that moment where I literally could not stop giggling. And that's all I could do for the next 10 minutes. So to the point that like five people asked me after if I was high, <laughs> they were like, did you smoke something before you went up there? And I was like, nope. And I couldn't, I literally could not get words out because I was giggling so much. It was, most people had releases that were through tears. And I tapped into this like need for just like joy. And that was my release, but it was really funny because uh, John Howard was one of them. He was like, are you high? <laughs> <laughs> so no, I wasn't, but um, that's really cool that she does that, um, does that also. And maybe that's just a way of working with the Enneagram in public settings i'm not sure one of the things that happened in that workshop at the richard Orr conference is that there were that one time uh we were given an opportunity a multitude of opportunities because uh, there are a thousand people who go to these conferences uh to go and have an expression of our number in some um you could do body work, you could do artwork, you could take a walk in nature. They even had um, places set up where religious people, I mean, by religious, I mean, uh, priests and nuns and others would be in conversation with you about your the, the negative aspects of your number. Like mm -hmm. it was like going to confession. To, to say this is how my down when I'm at the downside of my number my I'm a seven so um, sevens have a tendency to be smart asses to avoid pain mm -hmm. to always be planning something out there which can cause us to ignore what's happening right in front of us right mm. So uh, sevens have to work to be uh, able to be in touch with and express our our feelings. Yeah. Um, and so I had the experience of going to confession, which I've never done. And I mean, I have a spiritual director and I talk about all sorts of things, but I've never gone to a formal confession to confess mm -hmm. to a priest in this case, mm -hmm. how other people around me had suffered because of my personality type. So was there and, grief that came up for you? Oh, it was incredibly sad because that's um, a tendency of a seven when we are presented with grief to step aside 
And, um, you know, Holly, I knew this when I was in my training uh, in, in the hospital about mm -hmm. how difficult it was initially to go into the room of a patient who had just died and be with their family or where death was about to, to occur. And of course, over a period of time, you get one gets acclimated to that. Mm -hmm. And the danger is that you can can start to relate to those instances in a detached way, in a clinical way, mm -hmm. so that you can appear to be present, but you aren't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it takes some it takes some effort to do that. Mm. Uh, I'm in a men's group with, I want to say, not quite a dozen yeah. guys. Yeah. Seven of seven of us are sevens. Seven. Seven guys in my men's group are sevens. Oh my gosh. Okay, then we know who started that one. <laughs> uh, seven. That's amazing. Um, that is really interesting. Yeah. So is there is there movement in your men's group? Um, and I happen to know some of who, who are in that with you, but um, it, and that's just because they've shared, not because you've disclosed anything. Right. But um, right. But that that there. Is there movement then in that men's group to sit with the feeling, to sit with the any grief? Oh, absolutely, yeah. because we can call each other out on. So what? Yeah. What did you? What if anything could you do, or did you do, or are you doing, to remedy the not sitting with the deep emotions and wanting to sort of back out? How do you? How do you, or do you remedy it? Or do you just accept that's part of who I am and maybe I just can't? Well, the value of the, that's a wonderful question. And and mm -hmm. I, there, there are several things that I do. This is getting much more personal than I intended. Mm -hmm. But there are mm -hmm. several things that I personally do. Of course, one is to have a daily practice. Uh, and 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 to, not mentioned that one before, so keep going. Oh, go fly kite. Anyway, um, so also having a regular uh, meeting with my spiritual director, who calls me on it. Sister Lois just mm -hmm. nails me to the wall, and being part of a men's group where we have a covenant with each other to stay in the room and mm -hmm. to deal with what comes up. And that practice that is very helpful in in, in staying in the moment mm -hmm. and uh, to acknowledge what is um, what what's really what's really happening. So I think I get some daily exposure in in just being aware that my spiritual work following the um, following the guidance of people who go back all the way back to St. Benedict and others mm -hmm. um, to the, the examine process in uh, spiritual practice and, and keeping as a watchword in front of me Thomas Burton's dictum that if you want to know God you got to know yourself mm -hmm. and um knowledge that's why one of the reasons why i think the enneagram is so important and i know i know when i tried to talk to colleagues about it sometimes colleagues in the ministry 
I'll say, oh, about what's your Enneagram number? They're very dismissive about it. Ah, it's like the Myers Briggs. I don't need to know that. That was my own response for years mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. Richard Rohr said to me, um, Bill, do you, what's your Enneagram? But I didn't even know what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I did find out about it, I was really passive aggressive mm -hmm. about learning about the Enneagram. He would say, um, how are you doing with your Enneagram work? And I said, you know, and I never intended to do anything with it hmm. because I felt like, you know, I administer the Myers-Briggs in my work with my clients. I did at that time. Um, I, I can do inkblot, a version of the inkblot test with clients, mm -hmm. protective completion test, do dream work, all that sort of stuff. I didn't need that. But he finally made it clear that if I was going to continue to work with him, I would have to do it. So um, I, I, I pursued that and I got misdirected early on because somebody after I couldn't figure out my number told me that I was a five. And mm -hmm. I lived with that misidentification for a while until I ran into somebody who really knew the Enneagram and, and said, you got to come up with your own typing. You have to do your own work. You can't let somebody tell you what you are. Mm -hmm. So there is a book by a woman and a co-author whose name I can't remember. The author I remember is Waggle called The Enneagram Made Easy, which you can get off of Amazon. You can get it as an e-reader and it's a book. You could give Holly to either any of your three children. It's not dumbed down, but it's easy enough for them to read, and they mm -hmm. can, can begin to kind of figure out what their own number is. And yeah, um, it's just a helpful thing to know that um, as a seven, I have certain strengths. That's for sure. For sure, we all do. We all do. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have blind spots that being aware of those. Uh, and the Enneagram just gives you a good map about how to how to be aware of how you can grow. Mm -hmm. you know, so. Yeah, it's a map. And and I and as you know, I I love this quote so much, but that you know, we can't mistake the map the map for the terrain because right. if we don't live it or become aware of it or observe ourselves in some way, um the map doesn't mean a thing, <laughs> you know. Um, I just looked up the Enneagram Made Easy. I have this book. I, I was trying to remember if it was the one with that kind of sunshine graphic around the head. It um, is, isn't it? Yeah. And I also have one called the Enneagram for Parents or the Enneagram of Parenting. It's something like that, but it's kind of like noticing patterns in your children. And again, it's not our job as a parent to type our children, but to notice what are the patterns that come up and how might we respond to them in a way that's more loving. Uh, I should probably reread that book because I think sometimes I don't respond in the most loving ways. I respond with my own irritation or my own anxiety, you know, mm -hmm. but it's um, yeah, those are both really great books and they have fun little illustrations in them as well. So <laughs> yeah. there's an app that you can get for your smartphone called uh, know your type. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that I think that map is really, that app is really helpful is that it has a section called Excel at interactions. Mm -hmm. So that if you know what your Enneagram number is and you know what your partner's Enneagram number is, you can enter that into that app and you can kind of see 
oh, okay, these are the places where we can get in trouble and these are the places where we really are strong together. And Absolutely. So, yeah. So I'm married to a four. Yeah. And four Very is, different uh, from a seven who feels all the me. feels. <laughs> yeah. Fours, fours uh, have a high uh, value on how they appear in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. see, as some Enneagram teacher said, you can frequently tell a four by the way they dress. Oh, how interesting. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So fours have this really strange thing is they want you to notice them, mm -hmm. but don't pay attention to them. I mean, it's really, a, you know, they want to, they want to be noticed, but not the center of attention. Yeah. That's really, really quite it. So recently, as you know, Sherry fell a week ago and broke her left arm and she's quite incapacitated. Mm -hmm. She can't drive, can't do, I mean, you, with one yeah. arm, you can just, not a lot you can do. Yeah. Fortunately, it was not her dominant arm that's broken. But um, I, I, I would say, would you like somebody to come over and visit or stay with you? or do? No, I don't want that. And she, she would like company, but she doesn't want anybody to come. It's very complicated kind of. We'll add into that, that like so many Southern women have been taught that you, you can't be seen without makeup on, or you can't be seen, you know, with, you know what I mean? Like there's also, yeah. I wonder also, I think this would be fascinating. What are the cultural differences in experience of your Enneagram type? Because surely it doesn't look the same everywhere, you know? Excuse me. That'd be a good question, Dan. Mm -hmm. I gotta go. Okay. Fun talk. Well, this is, it's been fun. We've been all over the map. Oh, we sure have. Yeah. But don't the mistake the map for the terrain. Right. <laughs> okay, have a good day. Take care. Bye.